It is indeed a momentous occasion today. Not only are we launching a brand new website, as you've just been hearing, but today we also are going to be finishing off our series in the book of Nehemiah. We've spent the last eight, nine, ten weeks working through the first eight chapters of the book. Uh, in the time that's left today, uh, we are going to be dealing with the final five chapters of the book. So before we join into the house, we need to pray and ask for God's help to get through all of this before one o'clock. So let's pray. Heavenly Father... I want to thank you even for the sense of your powerful presence amongst us already this morning and want to ask you that rather than removing that from us, you would intensify it. Would you speak to us? Would you challenge us? Would you confront us from your words? God, I want to ask you that every single person here today, from the youngest to the very oldest, would leave here having heard from you and that they'd leave with fresh resolve to live for you, for your glory. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we've been seeing over the last few months, this is an incredible book of the Bible. It's an incredible book of the Bible about a remarkable leader, Nehemiah, who did what seems like an impossible thing, except that historically, we actually know right now that what happened in the book of Nehemiah did really happen. Historically, archaeologically, it's been proven that this really occurred. Jerusalem had lain in ruins for the best part of 141 years until this guy Nehemiah came along and led the people to restore the city in just 52 days. And as we saw last time, 50,000 people then relocated back into the city of Jerusalem. And as a matter of great urgency and importance, they prioritized all gathering together in order to be taught from the Scriptures. And as we saw last time, the response was pretty amazing. It's just one of those most glorious revivals, one of the more glorious revivals that any city, any groups of people, any church has ever seen. Now, you might have expected the story to conclude at that point. I don't know, chapter 9, verse 1, and they lived happily ever after. But that's not what life is like in the real world. Just because you've made a cracking start doesn't guarantee that everything then is going to automatically continue in the same vein. You've got to keep on working at it. So let's have a, a spot of honesty at this point. Show of hands. Hands up if you back home have got some exercise equipment of any shape, size or form that you never use. Show of hands. Okay, a few people. How about this one? Hands up if somewhere lurking on a bookcase back home, you have a book that you purchased fully intent on reading it one day, you've never touched it since. Show of hands. Oh, virtually everyone. Certainly all the students are in that category. Okay, how about this one? Final one. Hands up if you or the person sitting next to you has started some DIY project in your home and it's still not finished. Okay, a number of wives sticking up their hands and husbands as well. Okay, it doesn't take much to get us to start something. Might be an advertisement on TV, 
an inspirational song that we hear, a magazine or newspaper article we read, a a conversation with a friend, just glancing at yourself in the mirror from a slightly different angle to normal, and it says you've got to do something about that. Might be a challenging sermon. whole lot of things that can motivate you to start something, but it's usually a whole lot harder to finish them. You see, more often than not, the thing that gets us motivated up front lacks the power to get us all the way through to the end. The ad, the speech, the song, the conversation, the glance in the mirror, whatever it is that persuaded us to begin something doesn't have what it takes to carry us all the way through to the point of completion. It's good to get us started, But that initial sense of enthusiasm can very, very quickly just fade away. And that's certainly the case when it comes to our spiritual lives. Because all of us who've been Christians for any length of time, probably we can all look back and think of times when we made a decision to read the Bible more or to pray for longer, or to work on some relationships, or to be way more committed to the church, or to reprioritize a certain area of our life. And we started off with tremendous enthusiasm. But then somewhere along the way, it just nosedives. And the interesting thing about those experiences is that often the thing that motivates us in the beginning is some kind of an encounter with God. You hear a sermon, and it's as though God is speaking directly to you, or God answers a prayer, or you see God break in and do something miraculous, and all of a sudden it sparks a whole new interest in you to get going with Him. I remember going along to many a youth camp many years ago now when I was a teenager. It would kind of start out, everyone pretty disinterested, kind of fighting one another to sit in the back row, and you kind of drift and not really listen or engage with what was going on. But by the final night, you're kind of sobbing your eyes out, and, and you're repenting of all this stuff and emptying your pockets out and throwing a whole lot of stuff away, and, and all the girls are embracing one another, saying how they're going to be friends forever, and everyone's deciding to go to the mission field straight away, and you, you'd phone your mum or dad and tell them you've been saved and you're changed, and when you come home, it's all going to be so very, very different, and they're sobbing on the other end of the phone. It's just wonderful. I mean, everything's going to be so different from this point on. Right. After a couple of weeks, it's kind of like, what happened? But you know what? That commitment, that emotion, all of that stuff was real. You did have an encounter with God. God got through all of your defenses and spoke to you and met with you. He really did. And all the things that you said you were going to do differently from that point on, they were sincere. You meant every single one of them. But none of that was enough to carry you all the way through the next year. And you know what? As adults, we tend to do the same thing. It's just that over time we learn not to be so public about it, lest we go back on our word and expose ourselves in front of others. So we have these sort of private deals with God. You you, you wouldn't dare to publicly respond at the end of a meeting. You, You wouldn't be so bold as to kind of confess to others or tell anyone else what you intend to do. But you go home and secretly you say to God that you really do want to be different. And this time you mean it. You really want to, you really need to change. 
And it's not that you aren't serious, but for some reason, although you start out well, you end up just losing momentum. And the reason is that as real and as overwhelming as that encounter with God really was, or as challenging as that sermon was, or as sincere as your commitment was, it doesn't have the power, it doesn't have the legs to get you all the way through to the end. It takes something more than that. Now that dynamic is exactly what we find in the closing chapters of Nehemiah here. These people, if you remember, have seen God work in phenomenal ways. The walls They weren't just built by their hard work. They came to the place of acknowledging that God had been with them. And so they want to learn more about God. And as we saw last time, they they gather together, all 50,000 of them, to learn from the Scriptures. And they're convicted, they're cut to the heart by what they hear. And so they fall down on their knees, they're repenting together. They rededicate their lives to Him. There's amazing joy and celebration that fills the whole city of Jerusalem. And as we're going to see... They then move on to tell God that they are willing to do with their lives whatever he asks them to do. If you've got a Bible with you, maybe you could turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9, we're going to start reading in verse 1. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together fasting and wearing sackcloth and having dust on their heads. Now, I've got to pause at that point, and that seems decidedly odd. Uh, This was their way back then of saying that they were very, very serious about this. Uh, Slightly different to date, that's what they did back then. Verse 2, those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. And again, that requires some comment. I'll come back and kind of touch on what that was all about in a few moments' time. Reading on, they stood in their places and they confessed their sins and the wickedness of their fathers. Now, I've got to explain that. I mean, all you kids, uh, I don't want you coming along next week and kind of confessing the sins of your dads, okay? That, that isn't what this is all about necessarily. Uh, let me kind of explain what was happening. These people, they recognize that they've got into trouble in the first place because their ancestors, their forefathers, had grown slack in their obedience to God. So they tell God that they've learned the lesson. That was then, this is now, we're going to be oh so very different. So they stood up and they confessed their sins, And also they acknowledged the wickedness of their fathers. And then look at the final verse of the chapter. End of chapter 9, verse 38. Here's what they did. In view of all of this, we are now making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. They're saying, God, we are so incredibly serious here. And I know that we've made all of these promises in the past, but this time we really mean it. And so they put it in writing. They kind of all queue up, or I guess 50,000, they sign it. If you like, they're making this contract that God could now hold them to. And I want us to quickly look at what the contract contains. Three main things. First of all, they contracted before God. They promised God that they would get their lives sorted out relationally. Verse 30 of chapter 10. We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or to take their daughters for our sons. In other words, we're not going to intermarry with the people around us. Just to explain, 
the issue here isn't racism. It's not that they were against other races. It's just that many years previously, God had forbidden them from intermarrying with the nations around them, intermarrying with people who had different belief systems and different faiths. You see, God didn't want the religions or the beliefs of other nations infiltrating and watering down their belief in the one true God. Because history showed that whenever God's people, whenever the Israelites started marrying people from the surrounding nations, invariably it ended up diluting their own worship of God. All sorts of other idols would come in and the worship of God would just sort of fizzle out. Now, this is a hugely current issue. I mean, over the years, I've lost count of the number of people who have come up to me and said that they want to marry someone who isn't a Christian. And they try and convince me it's not really a big deal. I mean, we love each other. We get on so well together. We even like the same kind of music. I mean, we must spend the rest of our lives together. And I, I know we believe different things but they are really happy for me to keep coming to church. I really think we can work this out. It's not going to be an issue. It's not going to be a problem. But it is a problem. The problem is that God knows better. So way back in the beginning, he made a law about it. And now these people in Jerusalem know from experience it really is a problem because they've seen the effect it's had on their ancestors. They're reaping the consequences right now. They saw the trouble it had got them into. They saw that what God had warned would happen did happen. And so they say together, from here on in, we're not going to intermarry with people who don't share our beliefs. First of all then, they get their lives sorted out relationally. And then secondly, they sought to prioritize their worship of God. Verse 31, when the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Every seventh year, we will forego working the land and will cancel all debts. Now again, Let me try and explain what's going on here. The problem these people faced was that the Sabbath was just like another working day for all the surrounding nations. So the Sabbath would come around and I don't know, maybe a guy would come along selling eggs and you'd run out of eggs and you would quite fancy an egg for your breakfast. And you're thinking, well, I know it's the Sabbath, but it's just an egg, murder, rape, adultery, we're not going to do any of those things, but buying an egg on the Sabbath, I mean, where's the harm in that? And so they began doing business on the day that God says, don't do business. What happens? Well, slowly but surely, it starts to water down the sanctity and the holiness of the Sabbath. They had another rule, went like this, every seventh year, They weren't supposed to plant their crops. They were supposed to trust God to take care of them. Well, they never practiced that. I mean, that was way out there. And then there was this one. Get this. Every seven years, they were supposed to forgive people their debts. So if somebody owed them money, when the seventh year arrived, they were supposed to write off the debt. Now, it sounds great. 
In fact, in preparation for this, I actually went into HSBC, humbly suggested to them they might want to model this approach to me. They laughed me out of the bank. Think what a financial hit this would be. I mean, you you can understand them turning a blind eye to this kind of a law. But what they've seen was that when their ancestors, when their forefathers started messing around with God's law, when they started violating all of these details, it did come back and haunt them. It brought them to the place where the Sabbath really wasn't sacred anymore. And so they vowed together to honour God by honouring the Sabbath. Now, this would have been a massive inconvenience to them. It would also have been a financial expense to them. But what they're declaring is this. The worship of God really is our highest priority. We're willing even to shut down our businesses so we can gather together for corporate worship. We're willing to take our day off so that we can enjoy our families and our friends and the fruit of our labor. We're willing to obey the kind of life that God set up for us because we love Him and we believe that even though it's hard to live out, His commandments are good. They're for our best. Now, just to explain, back then, God's people obeyed the Sabbath on Saturdays, and they did this all the way up until Jesus came along. But when Jesus rose from the dead, after his dramatic victory over our sin on the cross, after he did that on a Sunday, the early Christians, the first church, they kind of shifted their Sabbath day, their day of rest, their day of worship from Saturdays to Sundays in remembrance of the resurrection of Jesus. So here's the question for us today. Is the Sabbath still binding on us in that way? To which I would say a tentative no, but with a few clarifying provisos. Paul says in Colossians and Romans that the day we worship isn't actually what's most important. What's most important is the object or the focus of our worship. That's Jesus. And Jesus tells us that our Sabbath or our rest isn't just found in a day, but it's found in Him. That's why Jesus was able to say, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you Sabbath. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He rose for our salvation, and in the finished work of Jesus is our rest. Our rest is in the person and the work of Jesus, not just in a day. Now, having said all of that, is actually the gracious provision of God to give us one day off in seven. And I'd suggest we'd be foolish to disregard this. We're not bound by it. But it's still crucially important that we adhere to the principle of the Sabbath. That if you work every day of your life, kind of every year, you won't have time for the church. You won't have time to worship God. You won't have time to grow in your faith. You won't have time to enjoy the the fruit of your labors. And as a result, your life will end up worse off. It'll be robbed of joy and intimacy with God. You'll end up burning out. You might live shorter. Jesus says that the Sabbath 
wasn't created so that it would rule over us, but rather it was given to us as a gracious gift for us to enjoy. So really, I don't have any concern about which day of the week we view as our Sabbath. Really, the more important question is, do you take a day off? Do you have a day when you can completely switch off from the pressures of work? And I know it's hard. It can be a real test of your faith. Do you trust God enough to accept His provision of a day of rest? Or do you feel you just can't afford to do that, that everything's down to you and the entire universe would fall apart and disintegrate if you dared to take a day off? It's a real challenge. But does your faith in God extend to believing that He can help you do in six days what you're currently struggling to do in seven days? Now this is important. Because the result of being all consumed with our work is that we cease having time for God. Don't have time for the church. Don't have time to get to grips with the Bible. Don't have time to pray. We don't have time to serve. We don't have time to engage with a life group. We don't have time to rest or to enjoy the the kind of benefits of all of our work or to spend time with our friends or with family. For some of us, It's almost as though our job has become our idol. We're we're way more focused on our position or on our performance or on our income than we are on God. For some people, it's more like their mobile phone is God. Whenever it rings, whenever it sounds, we, we kind of bow to it and yield to it and listen to it. Or email is God. We're kind of slaves to our email. Or the office is God. Whatever it calls, we're there. Rules over them like a tyrant. And the real God isn't like that. Spending time with Him leads to rest and peace and joy and true perspective. But in our busyness, we can miss Him. I want you to listen to these sobering words from God found in Isaiah chapter 30. This is what the Sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says, In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. I'm pleading with you. Don't let that be true of you. Be like the people here in Nehemiah 10 who who saw the issue... And in faith and out of trust in God, sought to put it right. So first thing I say is we'll get our relational lives sorted out. Second thing, the worship of God will be the priority for us. And then thirdly, we then seek to get things right financially. Beginning in verse 32 here, all the way through to the end of chapter 10, they talk about their giving and tithing and generous sacrificial contribution. All of those things they're going to take and make. And in verse 39, they conclude by saying, we will not neglect the house of our God. Now what had happened was, they'd stopped giving their money to the temple. As a result, the guys who worked in the temple didn't have any income. So what did they do? 
Well, they stopped working in the temple and went and got a proper job. And consequently, the whole temple worship fell apart. There was no one there to lead them in worship. No one there anymore to open up God's Word and explain it to them. And the people realized once again that this was actually their responsibility. And so they renewed their commitment to pay their tithes so that temple worship would be rejuvenated. It would be restored to everything that God had always intended. So here you have it. Three areas where back then they made specific promises. Relationally, financially, and in regard to their worship of God. Now here's the question. What's the point of all of that? I mean, what's the relevance of that for us? I mean, I've glossed over a whole lot of the detail, but read the chapters later if you like. It just goes on and on and on and on and on. God's just done this remarkable miracle among them. Isn't that enough? Isn't there enough power in the memory of what God has done in the past to carry them along? I mean, they just made all these amazing promises, these vows, this commitment to God. Surely they weren't going to fall away from God after doing that. But what we're going to see is there is not enough momentum in any experience with God to guarantee that you're going to finish well. Here's what happened. You're not going to believe it. If you remember, Nehemiah, he was from Persia. He actually worked for the Persian king. He was the cupbearer to the king. And when Nehemiah left to oversee the rebuilding of Jerusalem, he had promised the king back then that he would return one day. And so a full 12 years later, 12 years after he left Persia, he fulfilled his vow to the king. He returned to Persia. Now when he departed from Jerusalem, everything was going great. The temple was in order. People weren't marrying people from different faiths. That they were giving their money, they were celebrating the Sabbath properly, everything was in order, everything was going smoothly. So Nehemiah says, look, I'm not needed around here anymore, I'm going to go back to Persia. Now after all they'd seen God do, after everything they'd experienced of God in their lives, Nehemiah leaves and the whole thing completely falls apart. And you read this and you're thinking, what a bunch of idiots. I mean, what? Nehemiah, he's only been gone a few years. And when he comes back, you know what he finds? He finds that they've started intermarrying once again with people of other faiths. Not only that, they're trading on the Sabbath. He goes to the temple to see how things are doing, opens the door, there's no one there. The leaders have all had to go and plant their crops because no one was giving anymore. I want to think about this. If you're Nehemiah at this point, how would you have responded? It's like you're given years and years of your life. God has come down and done this remarkable miracle. You've seen the walls rebuilt, the city restored. You turn your back for a moment. The whole thing unravels. How would you respond? Well, Nehemiah was livid. He sees the traders from the surrounding nations bringing their carts into Jerusalem on the Sabbath, loaded up with their eggs and bread and other stuff. He throws them out and locks the city gates. So they just hang around outside the walls. And sure enough, people start climbing over the walls to try to carry on their business outside. I want us to take a look at Nehemiah's response. Chapter 13, 
verse 20. Once or twice, the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem. But I warned them, and I said, why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I'll lay hands on you. No, 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 it's not that kind of laying hands on and praying and ministering to them, calling the Spirit to come on them. No, 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 no. If you do this again, I will lay hands on you. Funnily enough, from that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. It gets worse, verse 23. Moreover, in those days, I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I I made them take an oath in God's name and I said, You are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Why does Nehemiah respond like that? All right, so we bought a few eggs on the Sabbath, but what's the big deal? Yeah, we stopped giving, so the leaders in the temple had to look for other work, but it's it's important they get kind of experience in the proper workplace. I mean, what's wrong with that? Or, 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 yeah, we married people of other faiths, but we're in love. What's the problem? Here's why this is such a big issue. When you start being careless with God's law, when you start just picking and choosing which bits of the Bible you apply to yourself and which bits you ignore, the whole ship is going to sink If you start messing around with what God says, inevitably it will come crashing down around you. That's why Nehemiah was so upset. He's saying, don't you remember, this was how the city got destroyed in the first place. Have you forgotten how it lay desolate for 141 years? And then we repented and we started obeying God and God returned to being gracious and blessing us. Don't you remember that? Yet despite all of that, now we're going right back to where we started. Nehemiah, he saw the big picture. He saw what was at stake here. He saw where it was heading and it deeply grieved him. I think there are two huge lessons that we need to take away from this story. Here's the first one. No matter what God has done for you, no matter what God has done in you, No matter what God has done through you, you still have the potential to drift right back into the same mess that he saved you out from. How many of you have done this? It's like your life's a wreck and you come to God and then things start going well again and you you decide you don't need him anymore. I'm doing pretty good now. Thank you, God. I'll be back again when I blow it next. And so life's just like this kind of continual walking around a cul-de-sac. No forward progress whatsoever. 
I'm telling you, is a dangerous game. Because each time you disobey God, you redraw the lines of what's acceptable. And before you know it, you've completely lost sight of Him. I've seen it so many times. People who were close friends of mine, who had experienced so much of God, and now it's as though none of it had even happened. It's as though they never knew God. Maybe you're sitting there thinking, well, that never happened to me. I I think I'm the exception to this. I'd never turn my back on God. But you know something? This story illustrates in a powerful way that absolutely no one is outside the realm of drifting from God. The fact that you have seen God do something incredible in your life, it's a great kickstart to get you going. But that is not enough to ensure that you finish well. It doesn't guarantee a good ending in your life. And do you know where you're most likely to drift? Do you know where I'm most likely to drift? I suggest it's in exactly the same areas that these people did. Relationally, financially, and in regard to your relationship with the church. Relationally, the story goes like this. I was going along just fine until I met this girl. Then this guy called me. Then we hired this new person in the office. Then this family moved in next door to us and we started spending some time with them. That's how it starts. It's just a little thing. which became a whole series of little things. And then suddenly, before you know it, it is a big thing. Or financially. We start to believe that Really, everything belongs to us. We've earned it. We deserve it. It's all mine. We're no longer stewards of God's stuff. No, it's all ours. What happens is, God starts blessing you financially, and you end up having more money and less time. It's like you have more money and less focus. You have more money and less to give God. I mean, somehow it was way easier to tithe when you were making 12,000 a year than when you're on 112,000 a year. I mean, do the math, that's a lot of money to give. And before you know it, you slowly start to drift. And God's like Nehemiah. He's going, don't they see where this is heading? Can't they see what's at stake here? And when we start drifting relationally or financially, you know what happens next? Well, I just don't have time to serve in the church anymore. I mean, I'm just so busy doing all this other stuff that I can't make it along as much as I would have liked. I'm still committed in my mind, but I just can't carve out the time on a Sunday. You try and think of people that you've known, who you've observed drifting away from God. Wasn't it down to them drifting away relationally or drifting financially, or drifting away from the church. That's why Nehemiah went berserk, when he saw these people messing around with God's standards, relationally and financially. Because he knew that even though they'd witnessed a tremendous miracle, they'd seen God work in such a powerful way, he knew that still wasn't enough to ensure that they finished well. There had to be more. So let me ask you something. Are you messing around with God right now in your relationships? Are you messing around with God in your finances perhaps? 
Are you kind of drifting out of commitment to the church? Yeah, but I'm safe. I'll only drift so far. I'm telling you, you are naive if you believe that. Your memories of what God has done for you in the past aren't enough to hold you. Which leads to the second lesson. Protecting your spiritual integrity requires clear standards and bold leadership. It requires clear standards and bold leadership. Now, we don't normally do this because it's a bit tacky, but I want you to remember this. So, audience participation, I want you to repeat after me. Clear standards, clear standards. I know we don't do it. Please, play along, play along. Okay, on the count of three. One, two, three. Clear standards and bold leadership. Once more, clear standards and bold leadership. And if you can't remember it, just keep saying it through the afternoon. Clear standards, bold leadership. Clear standards, bold leadership. Get it into your minds. We've seen how Nehemiah put some very clear standards in place. And if we're serious about finishing well, and I hope we are serious about finishing well, especially in those areas where we're susceptible to fall, we know we've got weak spots. We must have clear standards. What's the standard? The standard is deciding how far and how much and when and who. It's deciding in these areas, here's what I'll do and here's what I'm always going to refuse to do and that's how I'm going to live my life. A standard is like this immovable object against which you can measure your progress. It's something that gives you a point of reference because that never changes. It's not vague, it's very tangible. I mean, back then, you'd have known whether or not you'd married a foreign woman. You're speaking another language. How did that happen? No, you know. You know from the beginning. And let's be clear on this. We all need standards to live by. How many nights will you be away from your family? How many hours of TV or computer? Who are you going to date? How far is far enough? How long are you going to stay? Are you going to drink? How much are you going to drink? If we're married, we need very clear standards about who we will and who we won't be alone with. Those of us who travel a lot with work, we need standards. We need clear guidelines that we'll stick to. Maybe you're thinking, well, this is a bit heavy. You're really starting to load me down here. I believe God would say to you, I am not loading you down. I'm trying to protect you because I love you, because I care deeply about what happens to you. We need clear standards. We all do. But if this story in Nehemiah teaches us anything, surely it teaches that just clear standards by themselves aren't quite enough. I mean, the people, they made all of these impressive vows, but then promptly disregarded them all. So how can we guard against falling into the same trap? Well, that's where bold leadership comes in. If you're in a position of leadership in any sphere of life, parents, bosses, 
if you carry any kind of leadership in the church, when you see the shadow of someone just about to cross a line, you must be bold. You must be courageous in addressing it. This doesn't come into my household. This doesn't enter our marriage. That behavior is not acceptable here. At some point, if you carry any leadership responsibility, it is going to take boldness on your part. It takes boldness, doesn't it? To stand against the increasingly godless standards of the society around us. I mean, what would happen to you? What happened to your friends? What happened to your family, your husband, your wife, your kids, if you have them? What would happen if, if we just allowed ourselves to drift along with the prevailing moral current? We must be bold in speaking up. Why? Because we know the consequences if we don't. Let me put it another way. We also all desperately need to be under bold leadership. We need to be bold leaders. We need to be under bold leadership. For starters, you need to be in a church where the Bible is clearly taught, where its standards are upheld. You also desperately need to have people around you who will speak up if they see that you're in potential danger. You need to have friends in your life like Nehemiah, friends who will pull your hair out if it's going to stop you from messing with sin. I mean, that's been vital for me, and I know I look a bit daft, but I mean, I, I, I'm still here. And a few others, I can see that that's happened for you as well. You need friends like that. Now, for those of you who might be tempted to take this literally, particularly for children who are listening right now, I am not giving you permission to start going around scalping people. Okay, so don't take this literally. But I do think a lot of the time we're way too soft. We are way too wishy-washy. We're way too quick to condone or turn a blind eye to behavior that, quite frankly, is just wrong. If we really care for people, we will grab hold of them. We'll warn them of the consequences. We'll plead with them. We'll reason with them. We'll keep on at them. We, we won't let them go. We'll drive miles just to knock on their door and confront them. We, we all need people in our lives like that people who will be bold and people who will be courageous in confronting us. I want to ask you, have you got anyone in your life like that? Is there someone in your life who will grab hold of you, who will ask you those difficult questions, who will ask you what you're playing at? Why did you go there? Why did you call him? Why didn't you come home? Why would you spend time alone with them? What are you doing? What are you playing at? Have you lost your mind? You see, standards alone aren't enough. I mean, there are loads of laws in this nation, aren't there, that that no one enforces. Great laws put in place to safeguard us, stop us from sliding morally as a nation. People just shrug and turn a blind eye to them. Don't hear me wrong. Setting up standards is a crucial beginning. It's a great starting point, but we also need someone in our life who's willing to come on strong, someone who's willing to be bold in addressing issues in our lives. Do you have that? Have you given anyone permission to be like that with you? As we wrap up, so I was thinking about this.
couldn't help remembering something that, that happened the, uh, kind of last summer when we were on our summer holiday. M- me and the boys were kind of messing around in the sea and I suddenly hear this loud whistle and, and the coast guards are kind of waving at us and kind of beckoning us and shouting us to, to, to move along the beach. And, and I'm kind of looking at them thinking, they've changed their position. And that kind of big high up seat they sat on, a kind of vantage point, they've shifted that as well. And what are they doing way down there? Of course, it wasn't them who moved it, it was me, kind of carried along by the undercurrent. You know what, it's so subtle. There's this moral undercurrent that just pulls us away. And what we desperately need is someone on the edge saying, you moved, I didn't. You moved and now you're on the verge of trouble. Get out of the water before you drown. Think about it. What a shame. What a shame to start out well and then to make careless decisions. Careless decisions in your relational life, in your finances, in your commitment to the church. What a tragedy. What a tragedy to start making careless decisions that cause you to drift right away from all the good things that God has done in your life. What a concern. What a concern if there's no one there who cares enough and who's bold enough to clutch hold of you and drag you back. You know what? The book of Nehemiah it stands as a great motivation for us. I mean, look what God can do. Look what God could accomplish through us. But this story also stands as a stark warning. Look what could happen. Starting well really doesn't ensure that you will finish well. So the challenge, I want to leave you with is simply this. Would you today set out some clear standards for your life? Would you decide what some of those guidelines are, those immovable things that you will shape your life against? And would you also be willing to invite some people to speak into your life? People who will keep you accountable to those standards. I want to invite you to stand and we're going to pray.